Hello and welcome back to LTC Heroes Live by Experience Care. My name is Peter Murphy Lewis. I'm your host. Today, I'm talking to Jill Vitale Awesome. She's the president and CEO of Christian Living Communities and the author of the book, Disrupting the Status of Senior Living, a Mind Shift. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today. Jill, welcome to the program. Thank you, Peter. Glad to be here. Jill, every interview I do, I like to start off with some type of new question that I haven't been asked before that I will learn myself from the way people react. So the question I'm going to throw at you is, if you had to name a book for 2023 in your life professionally, what would be the name of the book that you're going through, the challenges, the strengths, what you're planning on, your evolution of your team? I'm going to steal from my organization because we have called this whole year, and it comes from a hymn, actually, Strength for Today and Bright Hope for Tomorrow, right? And I feel like, because that's where I feel like senior living is right now, is we're getting our feet back under us. And we're finally, like, we have to keep working on that foundational strength, but now we can see hope for the future. Love it. That helps me go into a theme that I talked about when I first started the podcast a little over two years ago was how do you stay optimistic? This last year when things started better in staffing, in, I guess maybe not regulation, but in terms of in general, things are hitting the right path. How did you stay optimistic in the last year? I would say it's really, for me, it's about finding those little bright spots and celebrating it was really hard to get any wins, right? I kept saying, gosh, if we could only get a win. It would feel so good. But there are little wins that happen every day. And I think we just have to pay attention to those and just really see that there are amazing things happening every day. And there were amazing things happening in our communities every day during the worst of times. And sometimes that's when you see, I don't it brings out the most amazing things in humans when you go through hard times together. Are there any small moments, thinking of small wins, that are symbolic that you're headed in the right direction? Is there anything that you notice on your team, the way that the tone of meetings happened, the way that people started to bring laughter and joy back into a certain part of the day that two years ago was a little bit more challenging? So you're asking specific, like, what were we, what are we starting to see? Yeah. When you realize your optimism was worthwhile and you started to bear fruits. I would say... It is that. It's like people were laughing again, right? And it wasn't just how are we going to get through this week or this day, but okay, now where are we headed as an organization? And the belief that we could start to make things change. So this year when we looked at what our goals were going to be, agency has popped up in communities all over. And I said, okay, I don't want to go halfway what do you all think about setting a goal for no agency in our organization by the end of 2023? And I think even a year ago, people would have been like, that would have crushed people to think, well, there's no way we can do that. And at first people are like, well, that, how are we going to do that? But then we really, the other thing is we focus on positive, right? We want 100% of care provided by our own team members. And then you started to see people go, you know what? We can do this. We've done this before. And so it's that, you start to just see people being really open to challenging themselves again. I think people, I mean, there was so much change and so much challenge for the last three years. 
and people couldn't take any more. And now when you put out a challenge and people accept it, like that's something to celebrate. I want to talk about what you walked into in your current role when you accepted the new position at Christian Living Communities. And then just so you know where I'm going to go, then I'm going to go back and ask what you learned from working for the Eden Alternative during COVID's hardest moments. So tell me, what was your biggest challenge when you walked into your current role? What are you most proud of? When I walked in, so I started in November of 2020. And I remember there was bright hope because we knew vaccines were coming. I don't know. Maybe I was too optimistic. I was like, well, this should put an end to it. This should bring this pandemic to a rapid close. And the, the challenges that we faced with, I mean, first of all, trying to get vaccines for people and all of the everything that was going on with mandates and all the political realities in our world and how that impacts the way people responded to that. That was a really, really hard time. And we decided to require vaccines before we were required to by the health department. And I'm proud of how we worked our way through that. We lost some people along the way that decided I don't want to be there, but we did really well. And we had amazing participation from residents and team members. So I'm really proud of how we got through that. That wasn't something fun, right? That was the hard work, but that realization that things weren't going to get better in a matter of months was a tough time to go through where we realized we've still got our long road ahead of us. But I'm really proud that we all came through this in such a positive way. If you had told people in the beginning, you're going to live with this for three years, we always said there's no way, but we did. And that's something to be really proud of. So tell me about the Eden Alternative. Uh, I think you know that I've interviewed Dr. Bill Thomas on here, or at least Victoria, my co-host, shared that with you. When you travel around the U.S., people mention it all the time as the elite model. What were the things that you learned that you didn't know you were going to? Because I think everyone day one walking in has high expectations, but then it can still surprise you that are even higher. When I started leading this, the Eden Alternative, it was a big, it, here was one of the things that really was an eye opener for me. I was like, wow, we are at this time, we were in 18 countries around the world. And I remember thinking, well, that's something to be really proud of. And, and it sh we should be, right? And they probably are in more countries now. But it made me really realize that what we face here in the United States, the fact that we've institutionalized elders, the fact that we live with ageism and the Eden alternative is needed to undo that. The same thing was happening all over the world. And so that was a little, you know, I always just kind of assumed, well, the U.S. has so much to learn, but all these other countries around the world are in the same boat. It was really fascinating to me to see how all of these countries had followed that same path of institutional, whether they're called nursing homes or not, and really not valuing older people and especially people living with dementia and living with frailty. So that was a big learning opportunity. It was great to work with these leaders in all these other countries. We, there was so much to learn from them, but it's interesting how the world has taken the same path. That leads me, I warned you before we started that I jump all over the place, but your comment to the institutionalism triggered two things for me. I think I'll throw them both out. You can take them either way. In your book, there's a quote that says where ageism, paternalism, and ableism abound. So I want to ask you about that and that cocktail of sociological terms in U.S. society. 
Is that translating internationally as well? And then the next question I have, and you could decide which one you want to go with. You also mentioned surviving the hurricane made you realize that process was also an institutionalization of what you were going through. Feel free to field either one of those baseballs. Yeah, I would say I am not the expert on what happened around the world. I can refer you to some really awesome people that are part of the Eden Alternative in different countries. So not every country, right? But the ones that we interacted with, yeah, you've got ageism, which is prejudice against people based on their age. Ableism, which I always define as prejudice, discrimination, stereotyping based on someone's cognitive or physical abilities. And then I think both of those things lead to institutional practices, if that makes sense. Separate older people from the rest of society and set up these systems where people just become helpless is based on our false beliefs about what it means to grow old and our limiting beliefs about living with dementia and frailty. So the hurricane story, right? So we were, my husband and I were trapped in a hurricane in Cabo and then we were trapped there for four days after. And so, Peter, I think what you're talking about is as we were there, we had all control taken away from us, right? Because the staff were said, you are not guests anymore. You are refugees and you will do what we tell you to do. And the way that we all started acting, I just remember thinking, oh my gosh, I've seen this in nursing homes. I want to go home. I want to go home. I want to go home. Hoarding food. I was hoarding food, which I was always taught that's because people lived through the depression. People were depressed. I was pacing and wandering. And it just was a huge realization that what we see in institutional settings, a lot of the things that we call behaviors are because of the environment, not because of something wrong with that person. If you'll bear with me, I want to go back to the concepts that you say translate into institutionalism. The way that I'm going to ask it to you is why does ableism, why does ageism, let me think of the other word, and paternalism, why should that matter to a non-long-term care audience. And I'll tell you, Jill, why I'm asking the question is because my first job out of college, I was an HIV AIDS caseworker with the homeless population. And it was really hard for me to translate why AIDS matters to people who don't know anyone with AIDS. And it was even harder for me to explain to them why the unhomed is an issue that they should care about. How do you translate those into anyone who's under the age of 40 and just says, that's not my issue yet? If you're lucky and live to elderhood, it will be your issue. I think that's one of the things that we don't like to think about growing older. And so the way you think about aging influences the way you age. So if you're 40 years old and you're like, oh, this old age is all about decline and becoming dependent, then you're much more likely to have that kind of elderhood. So it needs to start early. And then the other thing, and it is challenging sometimes because people don't want to think about growing older is our world is missing out. We are missing out on what older people can be giving back to this world, right? Because the longer we live, the more we learn, the more momentum we have. And if we can learn to think differently about aging and then we can have a fuller life no matter what our age is. And then the other thing I would say to younger people is, look, there's discrimination against people. I mean, think about all this stuff about millennials and Gen Z and all of these things that are really unfair in their stereotypes. 
it goes both ways. To assume that just because somebody's a baby boomer, we know what they want is ridiculous. Just like assuming that somebody who's Gen Z or Gen X or millennial, that somehow you are this person who wants these certain things just because of your age is just not, doesn't make any sense. And so I would make that connection too, because I do hear from younger people like they're sick of being described in this way, but the same thing happens to older people. So I think bringing people together and knowing individuals as individuals is the answer to that. Do you piggybacking off the non-long-term care audience question, in your years of working in long-term care, has the perception of long-term care to those outside of it changed in any way? And I'm going to throw in another weird question in there. And you can tell that I don't know. I haven't gathered my thoughts together, Jill. So thanks for your patience. And do you have any unique ways to answer when you're meeting somebody at a restaurant or at the airport and they say, what do you do? And you say, what do you do? Is there a way that you phrase it to get them to ask a follow-up question because you want to encourage them to engage in a conversation where they might be educated as well? Okay, confession time. Yes, I host the LTC Heroes podcast and hopefully you know that by now, but I can't take all the credit. Jason Long, the CEO of Experience Care, told me two years ago that when we started this show, that this new audio platform had to create value for everyone, whether you're a client of Experience Care EHR or not. Then he encouraged me to become a CNA to really help LTC heroes resonate with caregivers and leaders. And between you and me, he really knew what he was talking about. LTC Heroes has been invited to almost 10 conventions in 2022 to finally shine a light on what leaders like you have been doing for decades. It's that sort of knowledge of the industry that really makes me appreciate Experience Care, which has developed a customizable and intuitive EHR that makes clinical financial and billing processes more efficient and accurate. It transforms workflows into something that makes sense so you can focus on what really matters, caring for your residents. The software is used by ALFs, SNFs, CCRCs, big and small facilities alike. Countless users have reached out and shared with me that it really is effective in helping them improve outcomes. I can honestly say that I know my grandparents would be proud to learn that I work at a place like at Experience Care. And I just wanted to take the time to thank Experience Care for sponsoring this podcast. Check out their latest products at www.experience.care. Well, I mean, sometimes I say I have the best job in the world. It's a good one. Well, first of all, I always talk about the nonprofit side of things because that is definitely my passion, but I get to learn from and work with older people. I always tell people I'd rather hang out with 80-year-olds than people my own age. And I mean that. And so when you talk about things like that, people start to, to ask questions. But I think things have shifted a little bit, but it still is. Sometimes you get the, oh, how sweet of you to do that work. And people don't understand what you get from it as well as give. Do you feel sometimes guilty that you might take more from the work than you give? Like you've learned more? Oh yeah, every day, every day. What would you say is your favorite part of the job, Jill? My favorite part as of November 1st, we'll have 10 communities, so I don't get to do it as much as I would like to, but being out in the communities with residents and team members, that's my favorite thing. We do certified Eden associate training in our organization a few times a year. And whenever the team asks me, like, can you come teach a principal? I'm like, yes. And so two weeks ago, I was out in the community teaching a couple of the Eden Alternative principals. And I just learned so much from the people that are in that room. And just having everybody together talking about how 
elder care can be different just fills my cup. And so I love being out there and learning from residents and team members. So your family's growing from nine to 10 communities, is that right? And home care. Yes, that's home care. How long does it take, in your opinion, for a new community to start to adopt your differentiators and feel, you know, it might start off as a distant cousin. How soon does it feel like it's a little brother or even a bigger brother? Well, we're very focused on making sure we have the right partnerships. So communities and and working with other organizations that share our values and share vision for the future. And so that makes it somewhat easier, right? Because most of the time, then there's already that foundation there, but it takes time. Change is really hard for people, for all of us. There's always, you have a phase of people are nervous about what's this new organization going to be like that they're going to be working with. We always get out there right away and talk with families and residents and team members so that if they know who you are as a human being, they start to go, okay. It helps to warm things up a little bit, but it takes time. It takes months. And fortunately, the organizations we work with aren't in this situation, but if it's a really challenged community where the culture's not doing so great, I always say it takes years to build and create the right culture in a nursing home or assisted living community, and you can break it in like a couple months. It's definitely a process to move forward. Fortunately, the organizations that we're working with are not in that situation. But And, you know, the other thing is it's not just us coming in saying you should be CLC. We learn. And so every partnership we have makes us better because we learn from the people that live and work in those communities, too. I read in the notes with the first call you had with Victoria and in in the recording that I watched, you have one of your communities that has an amazing retention rate in the last year. And I won't share the numbers just in case they're confidential. How would that team describe the differentiators at Christian Living Community? So sometimes when I have a group of executive directors together, I'll explain it this way. If you think about uh, the Pioneer Network website has this continuum of person-directed care, right? And it goes from this very much all focused on the institution, very paternalistic, very institutional, up to what we call our citizenship approach, which is if you live and work in this community, you are part of making this community stronger and better. It's about inclusion. It's about people having true influence. And I asked the executive directors, okay, stand in line on this wall from for where you think your community is as of today. Every time, the people that are the furthest along in that evolution have the best occupancy, the best team member retention. All of the outcomes are better, right? Because of that culture. And I think that's really what makes things different in our communities. And the other thing is they're not all cookie cutter. If you go to one of our communities, you're going to be like, wow, this is a really interesting things I'm seeing here. Do you go to another one? The foundation is there of citizenship and person directedness, but the way it plays out is very different. And I think that's part of the magic, but culture is everything. It truly is. Jill, I want to move into your book, The Disrupting the Status Quo of Senior Living and Mind Shift. Take me to what year did you first start to think about the book and how long did it take for you to know the focus, its current focus? I probably started thinking about it in around 2015. I was the executive director at one of our communities at the time. We had gone through such a transformation and it was like this, 
like it was unbelievable what residents and team members had created. And I just remember we were all like, gosh, we, there should be a book about this. So I started thinking about that then. And then I spent, if anybody's out there thinking about writing a book, every November, it's called NaNoWriMo, National Novel Writing Month or something. And you're, you set this goal of writing 50,000 words in the month of November. So I set that goal. This must have been, I don't know if it was like 2017. And I just wrote down everything I could think of. And then later I sent in a book proposal and it got accepted and then I turned it into the book. So all told, it probably took about three years to really write it and get it done. What was the hardest part? You know, it killed me, but I did it. Almost put the nail in the coffin. It was really because I was working full time. It was just, it was really nights and weekends were spent on it. But I'll tell you the, probably the biggest challenge I had was arguing with myself. And if you've heard of imposter syndrome, this voice in my head that kept saying, who are you to think that you should do this? That's not very good what you wrote. And so a lot of it was fighting with myself and saying, I can do this. And I think, gosh, if I had gotten that past that imposter syndrome earlier, maybe I could have gotten it written sooner. It was, that was a, a learning experience also, overcoming your doubt. I would say my biggest enemy when I'm doing something new is always that self-doubt, that imposter syndrome. Why did you put the concept of mind shift into the title? Because I think we so often want to put in new programs or do little quick fixes and think that that's going to solve things. But what to really change senior living, we have to change the way we think about aging. We have to think about the way all these negative things we've been taught about aging is shown up in the way we've designed communities, how we run them. So it really, it's deep work that you have to do. I read either a comment or listened to a podcast where you talked about one of the quick fixes that long-term care has tried to implement or induce or put a Band-Aid on is around the hospitality model. Can you talk to me? I haven't heard anyone openly put in writing what are the issues with this trend? Can you speak to that? Sure. And I, so I came from, I went to a hotel school. So I ran my communities that way for a lot of years, right? We should create these resorts where people come in and put their feet up and never have to do anything again and invest everything in amenities and services, which are important. But what you really start to realize is when you look at all the evidence about what we need to have, live a long and healthy life, there is no evidence, there's nothing out there that says to live a long and healthy, happy life, that you should have this life of leisure with no expectations on you. It's, it's exactly the opposite, actually, right? You need a reason to get up in the morning. You need to find your meaningful purpose. You need to have true belonging. And really, that's that whole idea of if you're viewing yourself as a customer, you become helpless. And that's why we talk about citizenship, which we really believe at Christian Living Communities. That's what integrates all those things, all that research about what we need to really have a fulfilling and healthy life. And I'll just ask you, I'm sure you go on vacation, enjoy staying in a hotel sometimes, but imagine after a while, don't you say, all right, I'm ready to get home, get back to my life. You know what I mean? Like that life of leisure is great short term intermittently, but it is not the answer. Some people will want that, but most people don't. And it's not the answer to living your best life. To expand upon that, 
about two weeks ago, I went to Austin for about eight days. And on day five, my six-year-old says to my wife and me, can we just go home and be with Pumpkin, our kitty cat? And we decided to leave a day early and come home and be with Pumpkin. Exactly. Sometimes you just need to be with Pumpkin. I want to sit there around meaning and purpose. It sounds kind of, I've reread the book Man's Search for Meaning a couple of different times, and I'm guessing you have as well. Where did you start to learn how to articulate the difference between the hospitality model and the importance of meaningfulness and purpose? I think it was learning, learning more about the Eden alternative and all those principles. Then also a lot of the research around successful aging, which I don't really like that term, but all the, that research there. And it was a lot of conversations that we had at when I was the executive director at that community where just sitting down and talking with residents about what are we learning here? And it just comes over time where it all just becomes very clear that it just became so clear to me that the path that I had been on and the path that I see a lot of senior living organizations on is not the path we should be going in. So I don't know. I think it's important as leaders that we are very much able to say, I've been doing it this way and this might not be the right thing to be doing in the future, which can be hard sometimes because you don't want to admit that maybe you've been doing things the wrong way, but it's critical in order to move things forward. Jill, I want to talk about how you went about making sure your book did not just regurgitate the material that's already out there. From your reviews online on Amazon that speak magnificently, is that how you pronounce it, Jill? I think so. It seems like you really hit it really well. Does that go back to your approach? Did you get lucky? Were you, was it subconscious? How did you make sure you, it stood out and it hit, it was something new to the literature world? I remember reading Being Mortal, if you've read Being Mortal, and reading that book and thinking about these are really heavy, deep concepts, but they're written in a way because of personal stories. It was just such an accessible book. And I was thought to myself, well, if I do write this book, that's the kind of book I want it to be. I don't want it to be a textbook. And I... For me, it was a lot of storytelling and a lot of it, a lot of people have said they really appreciated it because a lot of times you read books and this person, and you read it and it's like, well, you assume that the author has everything figured out. And I purposefully in my book was like, wrote about the mistakes I made. You know what I mean? And what I learned along the way. And I've had a lot of people tell me that really created a space for them to say, okay, this person writing a book isn't saying, well, I was born knowing these things and it helps other people to think about learning and growing too. So I tried to just make it approachable and real. I wanted, One of the reviews that I was going through, and I'll read it out loud for those who aren't watching this on YouTube or LinkedIn, it says, the review says, it's a thought-provoking industry rattling page turner. I don't think page turners used very often for books in long-term care. I'll continue the quote. That was my side note. Throughout this book is a call to action that drives you to want to operate communities differently. Jill, what is the compliment or reaction or feedback that has meant the most to you? And it could be some, someone from your staff. It could be something you read online. What has made something that 
you're the proudest of in relation to your book? I wrote the book because I wanted it to make a difference. And so I think one of my favorite things is the executive director of a community in Arizona reached out and said that their residents, they have a book club and the residents were reading the book. And they invited me to join as a virtual guest in their book club. And just the residents there just talking about how it, it's, it really got them fired up to, to work with leadership to drive change. That was my favorite thing, right? And then just being able to learn, for, again, learn from the folks that live at that community about what they took away from it, maybe some things I might have missed and what they were going to do to move things forward. I hope that it's a starting point for people. It definitely doesn't have all the answers, but my hope is that it makes people go, oh, gosh, maybe we should start talking about this and thinking about this because that's where change starts to happen. Jill, I've thrown 75 different questions at you in a little over 30 minutes. Is there anything I haven't asked you that you'd like to cover? That's a good question. I think you've asked really great questions, Peter. Well, thank you so much for joining me on LTC Heroes. And it's a pleasure. I love hearing your story and thanks for sharing your time and your words with the audience. Thanks for having me. Visit ltcheroes.com to join our Facebook group for nurses and our exclusive LinkedIn group for LTC owners. Visit ltcheroes.com for your exclusive access today. This episode was brought to you by Experience.Care, the long-term care EHR backed by guarantees. Visit Experience.Care forward slash guarantee to get your free profitability consultation today.